Hey everyone, this week we decided to change it up and make things a little more personal. So, we're doing a bonus episode where we three hosts introduce ourselves a bit and explain how it is that we first were exposed to honor and shame. Next week, we'll be back to our regular scheduled interviews and conversation. Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. I'm excited to be with you. My name is Jackson, and I have a couple of co-hosts with me. Uh, If you guys introduce yourself, that'd be fantastic. Hello, this is Werner. Hey, I'm Carrie. And why don't you guys tell a little about yourself? Um, I I guess I'll start us off. It's only fair. My name is Jackson. I am the theologian in residence at Mission One, based out of Phoenix, Arizona. I spent almost two decades uh, in China, uh, working with Chinese pastors and um, doing theological training for people throughout the region. Werner, tell me about yourself. Okay, yeah. Uh, I've been with Mission One since 1992, which is almost as long as Mission One has been around. Mm-hmm. And I'm involved in uh, developing training resources here at Mission One, uh, doing writing, developing uh, media resources for uh, training the global church, and um, really grateful to be a part of a community of highly motivated people here at Mission One who are serving with strategic projects and relief projects uh, in the global church, as well as we're involved with the whole honor-shame conversation with colleagues around the world. And I'm Carrie, and I'm a mother of five. I write. I have I've spent most of my adult life in serving, working in China. I am not with Mission One, but I do love Mission One as an organization and people who are, are really working and pursuing God's glory both here and globally. I know you've got your PhD, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to study what you did uh, for for your PhD? Yeah, much of what I just said is very entwined with what I studied. I did my PhD at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and it became the book called Saving God's Face, a Chinese contextualization of salvation through honor and shame. And even in that, just that title, you can hear the integration of a, multi, a bunch of different disciplines. Nowadays, people are specialists, and I'm more of a generalist. And so I oftentimes say that means that I'm either arrogant or insecure, depending <laughs> on the situation. I think I know too much, or I don't think I know enough. And it's this theme of integration. That's the kind of thinkers that I, I hope to be, that I hope uh, missionaries and theologians will be, is bring this together. So I wanted to study with my PhD is, how do we do theological contextualization? Contextualization is not done in the abstract. So I wanted to focus on the concept of honor and shame and how, say, for example, a Chinese perspective of honor and shame can uh, enhance our reading of Scripture and connect us actually to the original context more than we, than we might presume. And so it was, it's a very integrated project where each chapter, there's the four main chapters. The first one talks about contextualization. The second major chapter talks about Chinese culture. The third talks about honor and shame. And then the fourth chapter, which is barely 
you know, you can clearly call it a chapter, it's like 100 pages, <laughs> is uh, focused on a, a rigorous study of justification and atonement. And so you don't see many dissertations with four very distinct disciplines. But I think that's the conversation I think we need to be having is how do we bring social sciences in conversation not only with missions but theology and biblical studies and because we can learn from each other what can uh, portuguese culture teach us say about the book of micah and and if we can get the global church talking through this interdisciplinary study i think that we can it can do a lot for the church and we can learn a lot about the bible yeah and i remember jackson when i um, got your copy of saving god's face the first time and i started reading through it and I came to, I think it was page 50 or 51, and there was that diagram, biblical truth, mm. theology, and culture. Mm. It's a Venn diagram, mm. and it, it pinpointed to me for the very first time where theological blind spots come from. And I cannot tell you how excited mm. I was when I saw that, because that simple diagram explained lot for me. And uh, so I was really, really grateful for your insight on that. Now, for people who have not read the book and don't know what he's talking about, if you can imagine a Venn diagram with three circles that kind of form a triangle, so that they, you know, each one overlaps the other, uh, there's the Bible at the top, there's some global culture, some culture of the world on one side, and then our theology on the bottom other side. And the whole idea is that our theology and the Bible overlap, and our theology and some culture are going to have overlap in terms of themes and priorities. But what we need to realize first off is that our theology and biblical truth are not equivalent. There are going to be things we get wrong, things we underemphasize, things we don't even know about. So that's one aspect. There's going to be another aspect where we share certain values and priorities with a culture, but it's not biblical. And then the piece I think he's particularly, one you're particularly referencing, I think, is the fact that there are going to be aspects where a culture, a contemporary culture, really ha- finds resonance with some biblical themes and motifs and values, but mm-hmm. it may be missing in our theology because yeah. that other th- culture is going to be different from our culture, and, and our theology is always informed by our culture. It doesn't make it untrue or make it relativistic. It just means that we're going to ask certain questions. You know, we're going to have certain priorities in, in, in the way we read the text. But the blind spot is that other cultures are going to have insights and perspective on the Bible that we're missing out on. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was so helpful to me because it shows, for example, that biblical truth is always larger than any particular theology. Mm. And when it comes to, for example, honor and shame, there's a lot of honor, shame, and culture. There's a lot of honor and shame, uh, way more than we thought there was Mm. uh, in Scripture. And yet honor and shame is very much underrepresented in a lot of traditional, you know, Western or traditional theology. Mm. So that that was just for me a really encouraging and helpful insight. I've used that diagram in countless presentations brother uh and it's also it's always been a good a good teaching tool good well to keep us from being in the clouds let's uh talk about at a street level how it is that we have seen some of these ideas at work 
uh, perhaps may telling some stories, uh, how we came to be interested in honor and shame, contextualization and whatnot. Uh, Carrie, let's start with you. You spent a long, like you said, most of your adult life in China, which is traditionally known as an honor shame culture. How have you seen this question or honor and shame, whatever, play out in the ministry that you've been a part of? Yeah, I think I actually have to take about four steps backwards, even from having an understanding of what honor shame was, what that looked like in scripture. I have to actually step back to when we, that first year after we got off the airplane, we were living in, in northeastern China at the time. And I walked in to serving and ministering in China, not just with cultural assumptions, but I would say with a lot of cultural assertions that this is how I think it, people need to behave in order to be, you know, modern or in order to be even maybe civil if I had to really be mm. gross and honest about it. And, mm. and so... But what was happening is I was, uh, I was living and functioning. I had one small child at the time, and I would walk to the market, mm-hmm. and the oranges would be wrapped in a plastic bag. And I would, in my arrogance, think, it already has a peel on it. <laughs> you don't need to put a plastic bag on it. What a waste of someone's time. Then I would leave. I leave the market. Then I would pass the lady who was sweeping the streets, with, a, with bundled up tree branches, sweeping up very little, yet leaving a lot still, uh, and branches on the, on the ground. And again, I walk by and I go, that's a dumb way of doing it. Why would you do it that way? So I collected all of these reasons why they were doing things wrong. And I decided that it, they were just uh, maybe not as, as sharp as we were in the West, Maybe they hadn't been introduced to the technology that we had. And so I had one friend who spoke really good English early on, and she became the truth teller for me. And so I brought these questions to her. And I said, I don't understand what's happening. Everyone's making dumb decisions around me. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, it's because you value efficiency. She said, those women sweeping the streets where it takes 20 women to sweep a street, a, a street where you could send a, a truck through and be done in five minutes. She said, that's a job for every one of those women. And when you see them wrapping those oranges, that's a job for these men that are you know, out at the farms. And so what she was doing was really deconstructing my worldview. My obsession with efficiency um, was just not a, a, a value for them. So what that did is it caused me to stop in my tracks and go, okay, at the core of who we are, we are seeing the world in different ways. In ways that you think, I mean, everything down from the way that they count money to the way they go to the bathroom to the way they eat their food is different than how I grew up. But I walked in there with a lot of arrogance Um, assuming the way I knew was the best way. So with that, you fast forward through many mess ups culturally. But what happened is that I learned to listen. And I learned to listen to my Chinese brothers and sisters and watch how they were ministering 
to one another and with one another. When we would go into Chinese um, worship times, they were allowing the older people to lead out in different ways out of, out of respect and deference to them in ways that I just wasn't really used to. They were making sure that they were washing their parents' feet every night. And they were honoring their parents in these ways that was so very foreign to me. And so, anyway, that when I look at the framework of looking at Scripture with the lens of honor-shame, I feel like what I learned through the Chinese church is that they were allowed to be Chinese believers. They didn't have to become Americans first. And that was really freeing for them and actually very freeing for me. Because I think, you know, Werner, we've talked, it feels like it answers a lot of the questions in Scripture. Well, for some people who haven't been overseas, they might go, well, it sounds like you're talking about culture, but... What does this have to do with the Bible? Because after after all, truth is truth, and who cares what culture you come from or how you peel oranges or don't peel oranges, whatever else. But when I was listening to you, I thought a few words could be switched out, and you could easily be saying this about many theological conversations I've been in or books I've read, where the kind of judgments you were making about Chinese culture early on based on your assumptions, are the same kind of things that judgments that people are making when they read certain theology books or listen to certain speakers or whatever else. They have a certain lens right away that says, okay, good, bad, stupid, ignorant, mm-hmm. ill-informed, you know, whatever. You know, we may say efficient, but maybe the word in for theology might be traditional or literal or whatever the buzzword is uh, that kind of garners everything else. So... When you think about honor, how, what are some ways that you have seen an honor-shame perspective affect uh, maybe how family works or relationships work? And then maybe we can just kind of tease out a little bit how that might affect the way we read Scripture. Well, it makes me think of a story of, again, going back to that same woman I referred to a second ago that was my truth teller and has become just one of my dearest friends on any on any corner of the planet but she had a family life where her parents they were not they were not abusive but they're the way that the child and parents interact is much more utilitarian in China and so as then Dayu Dayu is her name she became a believer and really grew in expressing love and affection towards other people, which is not typically a Chinese way of doing relationships. And she realized that that was really a huge loss that she had experienced growing up, never hearing I love you from her parents, never hearing I'm proud of you, never hearing you did a good job, none of that. And when we were living in one city together down south, she eventually said, you know what, I need to move back to my hometown and I need to honor my parents by serving them, making them tea in the afternoon. I need to, like I said earlier, I need to wash their feet at night. I need to, she even sat down for 30 days straight and she just wrote them letters and sent them these letters of affection towards them. And 
what that really showed me, though, was honoring her parents was not a side thought or a side. Th- it consumed her mind. And I had a hard time with that at first. because I she, can imagine. Yeah, I mean, she that was. That is so unlike American <laughs> Oh, <life>. yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, such a huge difference. Oh, it's a like, huge difference, yeah. I can imagine writing a letter. Right. You know, yeah. To my father or to my mother, but thirty days. Thirty days. That's astounding. Yeah, and then, and she got no response. Her 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 dad said, well, "Why are you doing this?" So she got no positive wow. response from it. Wow. And so, but what that showed me is so going back to this idea of how honor shame really is the fuel behind relationships in China, is that she couldn't just let it die like. That it was such an all-consuming thing that she needed to go and be with her family and honor them in different ways that she ended up moving. She didn't have a job. She was going back to a very small village. And as far as... Moving back to her family. Moving back to her family. Really kind of giving up all of these things. Uh, that's how I saw it. Mm. But that's not how she viewed okay, it. Okay, well, that's a, that's a fantastic example because it does a few things. One... Let's just think from a American slash Western perspective. Nothing you said really fits the normal experience for an independent person who says, I don't need anyone else. I don't need my family. I just need to work hard, be creative, so forth and so on. And for a lot of kids or young adults, independence from your family is a virtue, not connection to mm-hmm. the family. Right. And so it would never occur to the average person to do these things as an expression of love and that that would be biblical. And when you, when you have this perspective that you're talking about from a Chinese perspective, you start also rethinking, what does it mean to honor your mother and father? And then you start doing some digging in the cult and the cultural background, historical setting. And actually that commandment on your father and mother is actually directed at adults who are charged to take care of their elderly parents. It's actually not, directed at the seven-year-old in some Sunday school, you know, obey your mommy and daddy and go to bed on time. It also helps us to see more of the connections between honor and love, you know, like in Romans 12 and seeing that rather than setting aside honor as an aspect of love, realize that you cannot love someone unless there's a sense in which you honor and value them. And that may manifest in different ways, but that you are treating them as some uh, weight, you know, with, with importance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Carrie, you mentioned that your friend, when she became a believer, that her life changed by the way that she began showing love and affection towards other people. Mm-hmm. Even though she was not raised in a Mm-mm. family where love and affection was expressed. Yeah, And it's really kind of interesting and almost stunning that yeah. the very parents from whom she did not receive that love she ends up using this newfound love of christ in her life to love her parents and how does she do that by honoring them and serving them in Mm. very tangible ways that is it's just it's a beautiful expression that Mm. i you know i just don't know how how much we would see that in our own, you know, Western, mm. you know, American culture here. That's, yeah. that's really, really beautiful. It reminds me of a book uh, by Fawn Parrish. It's called Honor, colon, What Love Looks Like. Mm. So it's a really, it's a good little book on, on just the tangible way of showing love, 
using honor. Mm, yeah, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. So it works both ways. In this example, uh, you just mentioned scripture and what the power of God's word can help inform culturally appropriate ways to manifest Christ in the culture, such as in this case, our loving her parents. But on the other hand, living in another context or having another cultural perspective can attune you to certain uh, biblical and theological priorities that we might be prone to overlook. Mm-hmm. Uh, Werner, what about you? How did how did you get interested in this conversation about honor and shame? Yeah, well, there's there's the direct part and what I call the indirect part. <laughs> I'll talk about the direct part first. Uh, at Mission One, we partner with indigenous ministries in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. And I've been particularly close to our ministry partner in the Middle East. Uh, Pastor Isam is a very, very dear friend, and, and uh, I, I almost consider myself part of his family and, and mm. he of mine. And, and when I have visited him in the Middle East, we would be you know, driving around, and like pastors often do, they will maybe share with their guests uh, from, a, from outside their city you know, how things are going, maybe some troubles, maybe some problems that they wouldn't share with other people. And when it came to, you know, stories of praise and, and uh, blessing and victory, you know, those were real easy to talk about. But then there were also things that uh, were problematic, you know, where he was not really proud of what happened and he didn't know the answer to something. And he would say, you know, in our culture, this is a big shame. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've heard him say that on numerous occasions. And it always sort of struck me because here in the States – it's not something that I hear from other Christian leaders. Mm. You know, here it's a big shame or that's a big shame. It's just not something that's said. And that always struck with, with me. Anyways, uh, one year, this was back in 2007, Pastor Isam said, hey, how about doing a little Bible conference for our church? And I said, would love to do that. And he said, what, do you, what would you like to uh, do? How, uh, do the, the conference in, what, what area of, of Scripture. I said, how about the book of Philippians? Unbeknownst to uh, Pastor Isam, around that time in my life, I started reading Paul's letters and just underlining words that had to do with honor and shame. And it's really hard for me to pinpoint exactly why I started doing that, but I think I had, I had read zero books up to, up to this point on honor and shame. I think I had seen one, I don't know, missions pamphlet on culture differences where honor and shame was mentioned. It was very, very elementary. Uh, anyways, I started reading Paul's epistles and discovering, man, there's a lot in Paul's letters about honor and shame. You know, the word honor shows up. The word ashamed shows up. You know, it Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, I pray that I will not at all be ashamed. And I started kind of just intentionally putting on the lens of honor and shame, and I found myself underlining a lot of words and a lot of concepts. Anyways, we did this uh, one-day Bible study on the book of uh, Philippians uh, in the Middle East with his, with his little church family. It was done in his, uh, in his apartment flat. We broke up into four groups, uh, one for each uh, uh, chapter of the book, and all we had to do was observe the text. What do you see here about honor and shame? And each group made a little presentation, 
And it didn't seem to be very earth-shattering. Everybody just reported it. You know, they wrote in Arabic on their, on their big piece of paper. And then a few days later, we were uh, gathered together as a group just in town in, this, in the big city nearby. And we were walking together. And one of the young women, her name is Maya, she, she was walking with me. And she said, Werner, that study in Philippians about honor and shame, she said, that has set me free. Mm-hmm. said, I am so much more free to talk about Jesus when I go to work or to wow. even mm-hmm. hand a, a Bible or a New Testament to a friend. I just don't feel afraid anymore. Wow. Wow. And I was just stunned by that. Of course, I was also very happy, you know, yeah. like this had really touched her life. Yeah. So after that, of course, I went back to the States, returned home. And, and when I got home, I, uh, I went to a... Uh, a website and uh, bought a couple of books on honor shame and that's how I started reading and and learning more and more about it and and teaching on it and just a long journey that's how it, that's really how it started you know what's intriguing listening to both your stories I'm seeing a something of a pattern and not a pattern uh, you'll see what I mean with Carrie you talked about I'm assuming you do not think through all your high school and college days about what honor and shame were. And then so naturally you just saw it when you went to China. No. Yeah. Okay. But you went to China, your whole worldview is kind of being, well, not whole worldview, but I mean your perspective of the world and life mm-hmm. was really shaken up and reoriented. And then you go to the Bible and you start noticing, Oh, wait a minute. That's, that's interesting. I had noticed that in the scripture. Mm-hmm. I had noticed that in the Bible and Warner on your, on the other hand, you buy this, Holy Spirit's leading, just say, hey, I'm going to start underlining honor, shame words. Just, I assume I just curiosity and, hey, you're studying the Bible. And then you just present a study of Philippians to, uh, is it in Lebanon? Is that mm-hmm. where? Mm-hmm. And then they start noticing all these things. And so then you see the significance of it for the culture. So it kind of worked, went backwards for you, went from the Bible and then in conversation with people in the culture, realizing, oh, this matters for them. Yeah. So. It- it, it notice really, in each of you are going opposite directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the amazing things about the honor-shame conversation. On the one hand, it gives insight to Scripture because honor and shame were was so fundamental to the ancient Near East and first century Palestine, the Roman Empire, how everything worked in culture and society in those days. And at the same time, today, there's the majority of the world uh, being non-Western is still influenced in large measure by values of, of honor and shame. So there's a sort of double blessing here. For me, my study in the PhD and the readings actually comes out of kind of autobiography. I grew up in the American South in Texas, East Texas, which is very honor, shame oriented. The various trials and struggles and whatnot in our family life growing up could be described in terms of the search for honor, recognition, and the attempt to avoid social shame and whatnot. And so that was just the the life I grew up in being kind of intuiting honor and shame dynamics. Though, of course, I've never used that language whatsoever, but... That had, that was in me as a child, and then as a young young believer, young adult, I had read and listened to a lot of John Piper, 
if you read anything from John Piper, you know he talks about the glory of God, and it's in every That's book, right. every <laughs> sermon. And so that was just kind of another thing on my mental shelf. Mm-hmm. Well, when I started serving in China, one of the very first things I learned was that Chinese have a difficult time recognizing the fact that they're sinners or acknowledging, hey, I have sinned, because the word for sin is translated as crime in Chinese. And so they hear, you're a criminal, and they have no idea what you're talking about. I've never stolen anything. I've never killed anybody. I'm not a criminal. And most evangelistic conversations just kind of stall out or get held at that point because they can't understand this nature of sin because it's crime. And so I remember thinking, if we can't figure out this whole sin thing, what sin is and how to explain sin, we can't explain a whole lot of other things afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so as I started thinking, well, I want to figure that question out. All of a sudden, all this other stuff, that other background came in the play. Like, well, God's glory, that should be factoring into this because glory and honor are, you know, functionally synonyms in, in the Bible. And, and then as I started learning more about dynamics within Chinese culture, I saw this is really actually similar to a lot of the South that I grew up in. The rules are different, but there's some broad principles here that I see that help me to understand Chinese culture a little bit better and then also reflect back on my own lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, real quick, before, I, before you finish that story, I actually talked to a friend of mine this morning who is a um, missionary in Taiwan. And she is using one of the your books, so reading Romans with Western with Eastern, Eastern eyes. I'm sorry, <laughs> reading Romans with Eastern eyes. She's going through it with a small group, mm. and one of the women said, "All I know is that we have this word in Chinese for sin, and it means crime, and it just doesn't work. But I don't know what else to do." <laughs> she said, "I, I know it's a bad word and a bad concept, but I don't know where else to go from here." So it's funny. This is still a conversation that is that is happening, yeah. and it should be happening. So, yeah. And yeah. so early on, I started thinking very simple word and pictures, analogies. So I would say sin is like publicly spitting in your father's face. Rather than having a word for sin, I would just give an analogy, and people go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it really helped move the conversation along. Sin as dishonor, in other words. Absolutely. Mm-hmm dishonoring, bringing shame upon his name, ill repute upon God. I mean, not glorifying him. You know, whether, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the Lord God. Well, that is what we should be doing. So therefore, sin is not doing everything for the glory of God. You know, we could say we're negatively dishonoring God. And so, I mean, these are just some of the fruits. I mean, just in an evangelistic setting that some of this honor-shame conversation brings to the world of missions and then also to theology. Because... Sure enough, as I was in China longer and longer, I go to the Bible and I see, wait a minute, the book of Romans mentions honor or shame explicitly in 13 out of 16 chapters. I mean, that's the most overt language, not even the less direct language. Why have I never seen this before? Well, the, the answer is really simple. I, didn't, I grew up in a culture that didn't think honor and shame mattered, even though it was right there in the text. And so I just... Might have just skipped over those places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that most pastors and theologians teach that we learn about guilt in the book of Romans. Yeah, so if the yeah. whole book is framed as a uh, solution to the problem of sin and guilt. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I come across like uh, in Romans 2 
where Paul actually says people should pursue glory and honor. I, I, I've never heard that blows people's minds when I show that to people. I mean, it says it explicitly. Yeah. That's right. Those who seek for honor and glory and immortality, yeah. Yeah. to them he will give eternal life. I mean, it's just crazy. Right. So it's not like, you know, just because you've lived in another culture, you can interpret the Bible better than everybody else. But it, I saw that when you have a broader cultural lens, you just see things. You ask more yeah. questions. Uh, and then vice versa. You know, as you when you look and notice these things in Scripture, and then you say, "Hey, let's be in conversation with people in other cultures." All of a sudden, you realize, "Oh, this is this matters a lot more than I thought it." I just thought it was you know interesting concepts in the Bible. You know what's yeah. interesting? Just the other day, I heard uh, an interview with our friend uh, Chris Flanders, uh, and it was by two mission experts, missi- missiologists, who were saying, "Well, you know, in, in Romans one, two, and three, you know, there, there, God lays out the whole case for sin and guilt, and you know, it should be pointed out that the vast majority of language in Romans one, two, and three is honor shame language, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's uh, as you've pointed out, Jackson, Romans one twenty three, two twenty three, and three twenty three are kind of a panorama of." Ways of describing sin using honor shame language. Mm. Uh, all of this stuff we've been saying can feel disconcerting for people because all of a sudden theology and missiology and missions is a little more messy. It's just mm-hmm. not as clean cut that here's my system and this is what we've always known. And going back to what I said from the beginning, we have to be comfortable with ambiguity. Yeah. And the way I emphasize this with the students I've taught is I say this, Hey, if you want to, do you guys want to know what it takes to be a good pastor? And they're like, well, sure. I said, okay, well, uh, here's the secret for you. Are you ready? And everybody gets out their pens. Ready? <laughs> and I said, all right, tell me ready. Okay, here it is. You need to be able to say, I don't know. Wow. Mm-hmm. If you can say, I don't know, then chances are a whole lot of other things are going to work themselves out in terms of, your ability to process with other people, wrestle with tough questions, uh, because there is nuance, there is ambiguity. It doesn't mean we don't know anything, but we have to be more humble about that. And whenever we're trying to bring together theology and missions, culture and the Bible, eternal things and the things of daily life, and trying to figure out their significance, there's going to be a lot of times where we just go, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of, uh, I'm going to phrase it this way, Jackson and Carrie, I call it the uh, the idolatry of certainty. Mm. You know that exists within, I think, evangelicalism. It's like we know the score on all these doctrines, and any deviation from this is just you know. It, it, of course, there are some core doctrines to which we would give our lives to defend, but there are many many things in Scripture that are where there's a range of teachings. There's a mm. There's a broad perspective on, for example, what sin is. You know, is it collective? Is it cosmic? Is it individualistic? The overall testimony of Scripture on many, many issues in life is, is very broad and nuanced. Well, and we, I think we want to believe that we can interpret and teach Scripture without a cultural lens. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we forget that we are we ourselves are still interpreting using a cultural lens. I think it's easy to assume that we are the plumb line <laughs> and mm-hmm. then we, yes. we make adjustments for everyone else. Yeah. 
But I think that for me was fundamentally the thing. Like, okay, maybe I'm not the plumb line I thought I was, mm. you know, that we still come with our own cultural assumptions when we interpret scripture. Carrie, I think that's a good place to stop for today. Fantastic point, and it really covers so much of what we're going to talk about in this podcast. We all have a cultural lens, and it shapes how we read the Bible, and in turn, that affects how we do our ministry. This is Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. 